What's up, good people? Welcome to episode two of Good Things with Matt Wells. If you are a returning listener, it's good to have you back. If you're a new listener, it's good to have you here. I got some green tea here. It tastes pretty good. Anybody drinking tea or coffee with me right now? Let's have a little sip. All right. Now, I know the plan was I was going to release a new episode every Monday. That's still the plan, but this week is a big week. We're celebrating. It's our first week. So you're getting another episode right away, and after this one, then we'll settle into that Monday routine where we start the week together. So let's get into it. July 28th, 2010, I had to interview Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. So here's a couple things you need to know. First of all, I know it was July 28th, 2010, because it was the day after my son was born. His name is Hayden. Dave Mustaine is the founder, um, the front man of Megadeth, one of the most, you know, uh, acclaimed and um, influential thrash metal bands of all time. Dave Mustaine is not only famous for Megadeth, he's famous for not being in Metallica. He was infamously booted from the band before they became Metallica, before they became super, super famous. As the story goes, he was kicked out because he was struggling with alcohol and drug addiction and there was some conflict in the band, but we're not here to debate that. That's just the backstory. So Dave um, had released his memoir in 2010 and I was going to interview him. And I was reading his book and doing the research while I was waiting for my son to be born. I was in the hospital Uh, waiting for him to show up, and I was reading Dave Mustaine's book. Now, I wasn't 100% sure how things were going to play out, because if my son was being born when this interview was going to happen, someone else was going to have to do it. But as things turned out, um, I was able to be there for the birth of my son, and then literally get a shower in the hospital while, you know, family were there hanging out with my wife, and I could leave the hospital, run down to uh, the Much Music building at 299 Queen Street West because it was literally that close and do this interview with Dave Mustaine. Uh, For those of you who don't know, 299 Queen Street West is a very famous building in downtown Toronto and that's where I went every day when I worked at Much Music and MTV Canada. Now one of the things that really struck me when I was reading his book was that he dedicated you know, a very powerful part of this uh, memoir to talking about the the guilt he had for the lack of a relationship with his son because of his addiction issues and constantly touring with the band. He just wasn't there for his son. And he, he, he had a lot of regret over that. So there I was reading Dave Mustaine's book, and he's talking about really pining for a relationship with his son that, you know, he'd lost all this time and my son was just being born. So I run down to the Much Music building, we do the interview and it's great. I mean, you know, for me, from as a music guy and also someone with a background in, you know, heavy, heavy music and punk music, I was really excited to interview Dave Mustaine and now I'm, you know, I'm on this high. I just had my first son. You know, literally within, you know, the past 24 hours. I'm so excited. So we do the interview. It's it's a great interview. And then after the interview, you know, I, I just felt like I needed to say to Dave, hey, man, you know, I really uh, appreciate your time and, and I really enjoyed your book. And I'm never going to forget where I was uh, when I was getting ready to interview you and reading your book. And he's like, oh, well, that's cool. Why is that? And I told him, I said, you know, I was... Uh, in the hospital while my uh, my son was being born, and that's when I was reading your book. And, you know, he he just kind of got quiet, and he thanked me, and he said, I can't believe you, you know, you, you took the time to make this happen, even with everything that was going on. And then he sort of turned away, and I guess he was walking off to the next interview. But before he left, he, he came back, um, and he sort of like got right up in my face, and, 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 you know, before I tell you this next part, I think it, it, it would 
really serve you to just press pause for a second and Google Dave Mustaine. I'd like you to know what he looks like and then maybe listen to a Megadeth song. Any Megadeth song, it doesn't matter. Just for context, go ahead. I'll drink some tea. All right, you back? You know what Dave Mustaine looks like? Long, red hair. He kind of looks like a menacing guy. And Megadeth's music is its loud and it's, um, it's thrash. So he gets in my face. And I wouldn't say it was like confrontational, but it was emotional, if that makes sense. And now I'm paraphrasing um, as to what he said next because this was almost 12 years ago, but I, I remember the sentiment. And he basically said, look, you read my book and I, I really regret not being a better dad. And you have an opportunity in, in front of you right now to not make mistakes like that. So don't F this up. And, and he meant it. And that's it. He turned, turned, uh, turned around and walked away, like walked off into the <laughs> thrash metal sunset like a, like a cowboy, you know. He'd come to town and did what he had to do, said what he had to say. And, you know, at the time, it was just a very cool thing to have happened, a very cool story. And I've told that story a lot, you know. Every year on my son's birthday, I think about what I was doing when he was born. You know, I tell him all the time, hey, Hayden, you remember where I was when you were being born? I was getting ready to interview the lead singer of Megadeth. But I have to tell you that at the time when this happened, you know, my daughter was, she was like four years old. Hayden was brand new. So I was in that parent phase of your kids are very young, you're busy all the time, and you're not thinking about a time when they might not need you anymore or when they're becoming independent. So although I appreciated what Dave Mustaine said to me, I couldn't really connect with the hurt, you know? I certainly like empathized with it, but I, I guess I couldn't really grasp it. Now, with two kids who are, well, my daughter will be, uh, soon will be 16, and my son Hayden will soon be 12. I'm at that point now where I know the time is closer when they're going to go off and live their lives and go to, go to university or, get, you know, want to move out. And that breaks my heart when I think about it. And when I think about Dave Mustaine back then, I was looking at him like, he, this is one of the most legendary figures in heavy metal. And my band was freshly broken up, and for me, all I wanted was what he had. But he was looking at me, just this guy who had just had a son. And all he wanted was what I had. A chance. Time. My guest has that chance. And has that time in front of him. My guest is a new dad, which is part of the reason I started thinking about Dave Mustaine. I was remembering what it was like to be a new dad, which made me think about Dave Mustaine. But more than that, my guest knows something about a fractured relationship between father and son, how that can affect you early in life, and how you can carry it with you. My guest is not Dave Mustaine. My guest is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, who has been very honest and open in his book and in interviews about how alcoholism in his family affected him early and has also shaped him throughout his life and even into his life in politics. Now, I know it seems strange to intro an interview with NDP leader Jugmeet Singh with a story about Dave Mustaine, but, you know, on the topic of fathers and sons, those relationships, the deep damage that alcoholism can cause, it makes more sense than you might think. This is not a political conversation. But I will say, no matter what side of the political fence that you sit, 
we cannot deny the importance of what Mr. Singh has done. First and foremost, becoming the first person of color to be elected leader of a federal political party in Canada has already changed things. And it will continue to change things for the better. Also, words matter. And regardless of your politics, the things that Mr. Singh says on a national stage about basic human equality, no matter who you are, what you look like, and who you love, these things are important. Simply by saying them is a step towards making them more of a reality than they are even right now as I speak. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have him on the podcast. So, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And this is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh on Good Things with Matt Wells. Jugmeet Singh, are you ready to tell me something good? Yo, I'm so ready. I'm so ready. People need to hear such a great concept. Well, you know, I know that our uh, our listeners can't see what I what I see, but you're holding your beautiful um, new baby on your shoulder, and uh, man, it's bringing a smile to my face. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get in all the cuddles I can. They tell me that there's a limited time. You know, at some point, your kids don't let you cuddle them. They don't want to talk to you, so I'll take the cuddles while I can get them. Um, I deeply connect with that. My kids are still cuddling, but they're getting up there. I have a 15 year old daughter, if you can believe that. Oh, wow. Okay. And my son is 11 and they still like to cuddle, but I'm at that place now where I can see that window closing and, uh, (laughs) and it's heartbreaking, man. So get those cuddles in, man. Get them in. I'm I'm getting them in, man. I try to, I'm going to tell her when she grows up the uh, important podcasts and phone calls and prime minister calls that she's been on uh, in the background and just making little noises. And she's been a part of some pretty historic things. So I'll tell her when she grows up. <laughs> well, I'm uh, totally honored to have her here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, Jagmeet, I'd like to start with a quote, if we can. And yeah. it goes something like this. We are all one. We are all connected. Who said that? Hey, that's something my mom taught me. And I've been saying it for a long time. I really believe in it. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about it. How has your relationship changed with that quote from hearing it when you were a kid to now in the position of the world you are? Well, so I'll be honest with you. Initially, it seemed like really new age. And like, how does that make any sense? How are we all one? We're so different. We come from different places. And so the concept didn't make a lot of sense. And it and it started to make more and more sense as I experienced things and met people And it's a pretty radical concept. It's truly like believing that not that we should do unto others as we expect to be done to us. It's to literally believe that person over there struggling is me. Like I am that person. Mm -hmm. And if that person's struggling, it literally means that I'm struggling. And so how it's impacted me now as a leader is that's how I try to live my life. I try to think, how do we build a world where we truly feel the pain of others and we celebrate the success of others as well, just as much. So if we lift each other up that we all rise together that really is fundamental it's become the pillar of everything i do now we always make that that a priority are we doing something that either lessens the pain of others or lifts people up so it's become really foundational it's you know it really struck with me as i was sort of taking a journey through your your life and your your the things that you've written but it occurred to me at this very moment that a quote like that has never been more poignant with everything that's happening in the Ukraine. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I, I want, you know, this is not a, a political type of, of interview or podcast. That's not what I do, but I would be remiss not to ask you as, as superpowers of the world are posturing and, and, and taking those measured actions and the debates are happening in Congresses and, and, and parliaments, what can we simply do as human beings who are like your mom said, are just connected as one. Like, what is it that we can do as this uncertainty rages on? I feel like one of the most important things that, that we can do is, is to have that compassion, that understanding that, that we all belong. And then there's going to be ways that we can step up. There's going to be ways that people in community can 
can help out refugees as they try to resettle, as they're trying to flee this war. I think that it's a, a massive fear on a lot of people's minds, but it's a, a reflection of what happens when we lose that, that understanding of our connection. So what's happened is you know, we've got a war waging based on this uh, a tyrant that's saying, let's go out and attack some other folks. And we're seeing small little chinks in that armor where some of the military is saying, well, why are we doing this? Like, why are we attacking these people? They're, they're telling us they don't want us here. The lies we've been fed aren't really panning out. People are telling us that we would be welcomed and we're not being welcomed. And so I think it is an example of what happens when we don't really reflect on the connection that we have with each other and we don't see the shared humanity and we don't regard someone as a fellow citizen on this on this global journey that we're on on this on this planet that we're on together so it's it's i think more than ever important for us to find ways to reach out to somebody that maybe doesn't share the same viewpoints but to see that shared humanity find ways to find common ground even where you think there's a lot of differences i found in life we all as humans have way more in common than we have that separates us even people that maybe politically are on the most opposite sides of the spectrum will still share far more in common. They're going to care about their families. They're going to want the best for their kids. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to live in a safe community. And the ways we get to that, maybe people have different opinions on how we get there, but there's no doubt that we share so much more in common. Yeah, I agree. Um, a quote that has always stuck with me that my mom said, um, and still says it to me to this day is, uh, <laughs> your, your value doesn't decrease based on someone's inability to see your worth. Oh, wow. That is heavy. It's a good one, right? That's a good one. Wow. And, and I had to tell you, it's Smart always, mama. yeah, her name's Sharon. She's the, she's the best. <laughs> um, it's, it's always resonated with me, but the later, you know, the older you get, the more things connect with you. And, and for me, living a life as a TV host or an actor, sort of an, uh, you know, uh, an independent artist, it's always gig work, right? Mm. And when you're an actor, and even when you're a TV host, it's like every day is almost like a job interview, mm. every day. Mm. But it occurred to me like, that's, that's like you, a politician is out that you're, that's a job interview with the people every single day. That's true. That's true. That's, that's cool to see the parallels. Like I can see how you're kind of auditioning for something or you're trying to get a role or even in the moment when you're putting on a performance, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, Hey, do you like what I have to offer? So it's, it's kind of like every moment it's a, it's an interview and yeah, every interview we do literally is an interview because we're not just answering the questions that are being posed to us by the journalists. It's really answering what's on the minds of people and responding to what's, what's their priorities and what they need. And so, yeah, every day is, uh, is absolutely an interview for sure. A job interview. You know, my, my mom truly has been a, a very powerful driving force uh, in, in my life, mm. simply just by the virtue of the example that she said, even though the words, she said many things to me like that. Um, but I feel like from at least from what I've read about you, that idea of, of your mother having uh, a mother having such a, a profound effect by the example she sets is something that you can relate with in your own life. Yeah, for sure. For sure. She set me on a, an incredible journey uh, because of what she, I could just I can now appreciate it, you know, early days as a, as a dad now I'm trying to mm -hmm. put a lot of love. Like I want to give her as much love and support as I can. So I don't know how to grows up to have that confidence, but yeah, I can think about now all the moments that my mom was maybe didn't realize all the impact it would have on my life, but the love, the, the, the teachings, the time and how it's impacted me and really giving me foundational beliefs and these beliefs that have, served me so well like this that connection i can't uh i can't emphasize enough there's another really big one i feel it fits really well with the podcast is this concept of, of rising spirits or chardikala i feel like that's something that sticks with me so there's so many things that she taught me early on and have weren't just lessons in that moment as a kid but were lifelong lessons mm -hmm. that i continue to think about and reflect on so mm -hmm. yeah a lifelong impact for sure <clears throat> my um my mom's father uh, my grandfather was um was an alcoholic mm. and he his decisions and his behavior really painted my mom's childhood and ultimately the rest of her life you know and I, and right. i know that it's caused her trauma in ways that i can't imagine i've certainly had conversations with her about it but i it's i can't be 
in her heart or in her head to know how that affected her, you know? Right. But what I do know is that it has created in her this empathy. She is the most empathetic person I know. All she wants to do is help people. You know, wow. when she was a little girl, you know, she would just want to help her, my grandma. She just wanted to help. And mm. I, and I, and I thought, and I thought about that. And I thought about you knowing your story a little bit. And I wonder if your own experiences with alcoholism in your family, did it instill anything similar in you? And I wonder is, did that have a part of your desire to turn towards public service? Oh, there's, there's no doubt the connection is super strong. Like it's, um, one of the most confusing things I feel like for anyone to go through is when someone you love and you know in your heart loves you, hurts you. It, it is the most confusing thing. It is a thing that you grapple with and you can't wrap your head around because all those things just don't add up. You, and you know, I clearly can see from examples that you love me. And I know that I can feel in my heart that I love you. Why is it that you're hurting me so much? And when someone is an alcoholic, they do that. And the only way to make sense of that, the only way to understand it is to really appreciate that it's an illness that no one would want to hurt the person they love in such horrible ways. And it does really build a lot of compassion because then you have to look beyond that pain and say, okay, why are they causing me this pain? And how do I reconcile that? And the only way you can reconcile it is, is actually with more love, with more compassion to realize this is someone who's hurt and they're hurting others because they're hurt and someone who's not well. And so when my dad would do all sorts of things, like uh, there's a lot of violence at home, there's a lot of scary moments, there was a lot of uncertainty, and there's a lot of broken promises. And he would be heartfelt, tears in his eyes, say, okay, I won't drink again. I know how much it hurts you and the family, I won't do it. And then to turn around and just do it again. Every time it felt like it was the first time. For some reason, I just, mm -hmm. I just believed him so much every time. And it hurt as if it was the first cut. It didn't feel like I was scarred over and I could, I could kind of take the pain. It just every single time it hurt just as much until I really started to appreciate that this is someone that needs help and, and they're going through an illness. And it's totally impacted my life and the way I look at people and the way I try to find compassion for people who might be saying things that are hurtful or doing things that are hurtful. I try to find why they're there, what happened in their life to get them to that point. And it's been for sure a life lesson for me. And you have a whole new life ahead of you as a father. And I'm sure that there'll be so many feelings that you'll be coming up against that are familiar. And, and it's just because it shaped, it shaped you, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure it has. For sure it has. It shaped me. It's, it's funny. My dad is someone who I also owe a lot to. Like he's taught me so much. And in his healthy times, he's taught me a lot of lessons that I wanted to emulate. And in his unhealthy moments, he's taught me a lot of things that I, that I don't ever want to do, mm -hmm. but in both ways, he's, he's shaped me and taught me and had a really profound impact as well. So I'm, I'm thankful, even though in the moments it was tough, but the overall experience helped shape who I am today. And I feel like I'm, I'm a better person for those struggles. Yeah. And you know, Jagmeet, you never, you never gave up on your dad. And, yeah, that's true. and I wonder you know, for, for anybody listening who, and, you know, alcoholism affects so many people, you know, personally, peripherally, all those different ways. Mm -hmm. What was it that kept you going that just was like, gave you that fire to like, I'm not giving up on this man? There's a lot of things. I mean, I think we can even go beyond alcoholism, just addiction in general. Addiction is a, is a painful, hurtful force in a lot of people's lives. And it, and it, it, it destroys lives. So it's, it's a real thing. I, I feel like for me, it was the moment where I really, I really started to appreciate that it was an illness and, and that the only way, the only way for me to reconcile the pain and the only way for me to be helpful was to come from a place of compassion. But I also have to say, it didn't mean that I, I had to make tough decisions. There was a point in my life, and, and I shared this in my book, I talked mm -hmm. about how I had to make one of the hardest decisions of my life when I asked my dad that because of his addiction and his alcoholism and how it was scaring and threatening my mom and my sister who were living at home at the time that he couldn't stay at the house anymore. And it was probably the most difficult thing I did. I did it in my, in my early twenties, I had to move my dad out and, and he tried to come back to the house. And I said, dad, while you're, while you're addicted, it's just not safe. Like it's, it's creating too much pain for, for my mom, for our, you know, for, for mom and for, 
for my, my sister. He just can't do it. And it didn't mean I gave up on him. Like I still loved him. I still wanted to care for him. I still wanted to provide support wherever I could, but there's also an agency that, that I can't make him better. Like I can be there. I can love him, but for an addiction, it is a personal struggle and you can give people support and you got to be there to provide that support. But at the end of the day, they have to make that choice to get better. And so I, I tried to walk that line of providing support and love, but also acknowledging that I can't actually be the one that makes the decision. He's got to make that choice. I can just be there to provide support. So I would say spirituality got me through it. A lot of meditation. I feel like when you go through trauma, it hurts you and it kind of hurts your mind. I was a, an angry kid in a lot of ways. And I feel like a lot of meditation unknowingly I did it as a practice my mom taught me, but it ended up healing me in a lot of ways. So meditation, coming from a place of love mm-hmm. and understanding were the ways that helped me continue to never give up on my dad. And, and he got healthy and he got better and he's doing so well now. Amazing. It's amazing. Um, you know, Jack, I mean, I'm making this podcast because not unlike that quote from your mom about us being connected, I really believe that you know, we are all, no matter who we are, whether we're, we're, we're talking to a movie star or a politician or, or a famous musician, we all, um, whoever we are, there's something we have on the surface and then there's a struggle that we have underneath. Back in 2017, you know, you become the first person of color to leave a, lead a, a federal political party in Canada. It's an unbelievable moment of busting down a door, making way for change. Yeah. So first tell me, about the celebratory and the euphoric sort of feeling around that. Just take me back to that moment for a second. Yeah, that moment was something, yeah, I'll never forget. I feel one of the things that was maybe a little acute part of the moment, there's a, there's a picture of the exact moment where it was announced someone had caught that moment. And uh, four people are in the frame that are, that are clear. So it's me, my mom, my brother, and my dad. And in that moment, you can see the similarity between me and my mom and my brother and my dad. They both kind of got it quickly that I had won. And so they're fists up in the air, jumping out of their seats. And me and my mom are kind of <clears throat> almost dumbfounded, almost like, what's going on? Like, did this actually happen? And so we're both still seated and confused. And where my brother and my dad are out of their seats, jumping for joy. Uh, the journey to get there was built on a lot of a lot of incredible people like I had an incredible team of young folks around me and it felt like a culmination of all of their effort and so it was it was more than just a personal achievement it was such a team achievement Mm -hmm. and then it wasn't just a team achievement along the way there were so many people that told me seeing you become a leader of a party would make me feel like I can do anything in my life and I was hearing that from people from all different walks of life, young indigenous kids. I was hearing it from kids from different religious backgrounds, Muslim and, and Hindu kids, uh, kids that were from Asian backgrounds. And it just put a lot of, put a lot of weight to the moment that this is going to open up the doors, not just because I'm going to become a leader, but for a lot of kids, you're going to see someone that they can relate to running to become the prime minister of the country. Mm-hmm. And they're going to start to feel like, someone like me can run to become the prime minister of this country what can i do and i feel like that was something that that hit me in that moment it was emotional i was overwhelmed i felt a lot of joy i felt a lot of appreciation for my for my team i felt like people that were a part of the journey were so invested that they were breaking out in tears and, and just so much emotion so it was really a special moment because i think we all knew we were a part of something bigger than us it wasn't about just us it was about unlocking the ability for more people to dream big. And that was, I think, the beautiful thing. Yes. And, you know, this is something, you know, will be taught about in in schools and forever, you know. But I wonder, Jagmeet, this is such an incredible moment, right? But as I mentioned, there's these ups and downs that we all are connected by. Can you recall something immediate or something that stands out to you in the immediate aftermath uh, a difficulty, a challenge that you had to face that was sort of people probably didn't know because you were showing a very strong face and, and you're the leader of this party. What was happening in the immediate aftermath of this amazing moment that might have been a struggle? Well, there's a there's a lot of things. One, uh, what typically happens, and this this happens to a lot of people who are in a position where they're not expected to be. 
So when I was sharing this, I, I feel like it relates to a lot of women who are in positions of power because they're not who people imagine to be in a position of power all the time. It happens to lots of racialized people, people from equity seeking groups. So a lot of, uh, a lot of attention was put onto things that would not have otherwise been a question for someone else. People started questioning um, kind of my loyalty to the country. And they did that because of organizing that I'd done in the past or, or, or groups that I worked with in a way that would never have been put to someone else. And so I felt a lot of, I felt it was, it was unfair that that wouldn't be a question that anyone would get if they had organized in their local community church or something mm -hmm. that that would just be a normal thing. And people understood, you know, you organize where you, where you grow up or, or in the communities that you grow up in. And so I feel like that was something that happened. And then there was a lot of pushback. There was, there's some people that, that were, that weren't willing to accept me as a leader of the party. And so there was pushback and people that were at one point, it kind of came out in the news. So it wasn't totally private. People tried to uh, push to have me removed as leader at one point. They were moving in that direction. So mm -hmm. it was, it was tough. Yeah, it was a tough thing, but I always say, I mean, and, and I, and I talked to my wife about this a lot. Uh, I would say the hardest day as an adult is easier than my easiest day as a kid. Because as a kid, I went through so many struggles and um, I wasn't equipped to deal with them the way I'm now. So as tough as it was, I feel like it, it didn't, it paled in comparison to what I had been through. So I was, and I'm, right. I'm a grown person with lots of friends and support networks and, and things that I've learned along my journey that give me the ability to deal with these things. But, but yeah, there was definitely struggles, no doubt. <clears throat> How do you compartmentalize um, when you are sort of shifting between sort of the different Jugmeet Singhs? So for, for instance, I, I remember on the, on the campaign trail last time during the election, you talked about um, one, a healthcare worker in Alberta and, and she was really upset talking about, you know, how being so heartbroken and everything that was going on in the pandemic. And you, you were, you were very honest about how that really cut deep to you. It really affected you. And I wonder when I, when I mentioned that, th when I mentioned that situation and everything that you just mentioned before about coming out of that, uh, of your, of your historic win, how do you separate between the Jagmeet Singh that's on television and that Canada needs? And then you go home and this beautiful baby needs you and your wife needs you because you're still a human being, right? How do you, how do you compartmentalize? How can you shut it off? You know, I, one of the things that, that people say about me is I'm kind of the same person everywhere. Like uh, my wife sometimes like wants to like tell people, she's like, it is unreal how positive you are. Like you are never not positive. Like even when things are tough, when we were having some tough moments with Anha, the early days and not knowing what to do, uh, I'm always someone who sees some sort of positive in the moment or uh, keeps that positive spirit going or is even like defiant in the face of, of tough, tough times. So I, I, I'm that same person. I, I, don't, uh, I don't really compartmentalize it. The one thing I do compartmentalize a bit is I feel really deeply the pain of others. And that to me hits me harder than my own struggles. So when people often ask me about my own struggles, I, I have a hard time thinking about it. Cause I think, like I mentioned, I've been through harder in my life, but when I hear people's stories that cuts me the most, like when I, when I heard that healthcare worker, I remember that vividly, she was in tears because she thought it was her fault that she couldn't provide enough care to the people that she She's a nurse and she felt like it was her fault that she couldn't care for them enough, despite the fact that it was because she was under-resourced, understaffed, overworked. And I had to keep on saying, it's not your fault. Like you are doing everything. I'm here to make sure people know that we need to give you more help. And, and she was uh, just had so much heart, so much compassion, and was feeling like it was her fault. And I had to keep on telling her, no, you were doing everything more than is expected of you. So those things I feel like cut me hard when I hear people's stories, when I met a kid who was worried about the cost of his medication because his parents had to pay for it. I'm like, you're a little kid and you're worried about how much it costs to keep you alive. You shouldn't have to worry about that. So those are things that cut me hard and I, and I can't compartmentalize uh, or I have to, because it, it sometimes can be so hard to hear those stories, but um, I'm kind of always the same person wherever you take me. I'm, I'm kind of same person, same vibe. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get a sense of that talking to you and I, 
I really feel like, you know, that's why as I was sort of learning more about you, it really made me think about my mom because I'm telling you, man, <laughs> I, I would see her. I remember being 10, 11, 12 years old. My parents had split and mom, she didn't have a lot of money. And there was mm. a ho hockey coach that I had and he didn't have any money. So my mom got her first Christmas bonus ever and she gave it to him to buy groceries. Wow. You know? So at the time it didn't hit me. I was just like, oh, okay, you're giving him money. And, but now I'm like, oh man, she, she went through a very difficult childhood. Yeah. So she has an empathy and all she sees is the hurt in other people. And I, yeah. and, and that's what I, and the more I read about you, I was just like, I, it just reminded me so much of her and uh, which is a, which is a, a very cool thing, man. Well, I, what I, a beautiful thing. Huh? Again, back that connection that like me and your mom, uh, different walks of life, different, yeah. different grew up in different places, but having similar experiences, have mm -hmm. made that incredible connection. Uh, I would love to meet your mom one day. That's so cool. You will next time you're in St. John's, man. Uh, that's awesome. Um, well, okay, I guess we have that in common too, because I, uh, I I grew up in St. John's. Actually. Yeah. How uh, long did I'm... you live? How did, long did you live in St. John's? So, so my brother and sister were both born there. So we lived there for a chunk of time. We were there from I got there when I was about two, and we lived there till about seven. So five, six years. What school did you go to? So I went to I went to kindergarten in uh, in St. John's. I don't remember the school though, but and I went to kindergarten in St. John's, and then I went to grade one in Grand Falls. We lived in Grand Falls for a bit too. So That's yeah, we amazing. lived there for a good chunk of years. And I feel like you know people always say your formational or your 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 foundational years are your you know zero yeah. to seven. Yeah. So I mean, I spent those years pretty much in in Newfoundland Labrador. So and it's then a, it's a beautiful yeah, place that, to to form you. 100%. So it definitely formed me. And then the things that I would say are a big part of my life. I love swimming and biking. I learned how to swim and learn how to bike in Bowering Park across the street from where I where I lived. So yeah, I don't want to tell everyone the podcast where my mom lives, but literally I can walk to Bowering Park in 30 seconds from my mom's house. Wow. Well, that's where I grew up. I grew up right at uh, there's a hospital right there. Yeah, I had a should I should I give a quick pause from a little girl or I think we're no, if, if you if you guys are okay, I'm cool. I love, I love, I love having her part of it. It keeps, it makes it real, right, girl? Oh, do you need to take a second? Yeah, I should see. Maybe she just needs a little yeah. adjustment. Okay, I think she's good now. Um, yeah, we lived. Uh, there's a, a hospital where my dad was was training to become a psychiatrist. Uh, At the Waterford. Right. Waterford, that's the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you would know it. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, because you're from St. John's. So yeah, so Waterford Hospital had on on kind of the campus. There was a couple of buildings. They're white buildings that used to be residences for for students. Yeah. And so one of those white buildings, we lived in the middle floor, second floor. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Um. The 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 first the first big monumental moment and this is so off topic but because we're on Bowering Park the big mo first <laughs> monumental moment in my career as a musician which led me to becoming a television host and where I am now was playing a concert opening for Our Lady Peace at the at the foot of that big um, hill where everyone slides in the winter in Bowering yeah, Park yeah 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 and there sure was a I know huge, that. huge co concert in 1998 called Somersault. And we were the local band. I was in a band called Bucket Truck. And we were starting to get popular. And they put us on the main stage with wow. Our Lady Peace, Sloan, I'm Mother Earth. And that was it. Like, then I started, we wow. started to get all these great shows. So, man, who knows, man? We were we were walking the same the same grass at Bowering Park. See, we're all connected, man. Wow. We're wow. All walking the same grass at Bowering Bar Bowering Park literally is where I spent all my time. Like I have so many pictures of me as a kid in Bowering Park. Uh, at the Peter a, Pan, at the Peter Pan statue. The Peter Pan statue, the caribou, the caribou statue. I thought it was a moose for the longest time. <laughs> and then there's a, uh, there's the, the duck pond, which is a big part. And there's yes. a pool, the pool is shut down. There used to be a pool, an outdoor oh, pool there. Yeah, no, I it's think still they did it though. It's still going. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. there. Well, that's amazing. So at some point when we're in St. John's together, we had to go jogging and, um, that's what we should in do. Barren Park. That's what yes. we need to do. Okay, yes. listen, I'm, I'm going to wind this down. I know you got to be a dad. A couple, couple things before before we go. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you before we get into our sort of rapid fire is the one thing that I've always admired about you is you 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 talk about changing the culture instead of just changing the laws. Hmm. And I think that is so profound. And I, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit and and tell me do you think it's possible? Oh yeah, for sure. I think it's possible, but I would say that the concept is 
if we have people that believe in a law that could hurt folks, we could for sure and we should fight back against the law. But what's a bigger problem is, is why people believed in it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and what we really need to do is get people to see that there's a problem with that so that it's not just you have a certain government that's in power that can maybe get rid of the law that's hurtful. And then another government comes in and it comes back in. We really need to get at people no longer seeing that, that a certain position is, is good or, or realizing how we could harm folks. And that to me is the, the, the harder work to get to a point where the people are saying, you know what, we don't want this either. And, and that is a bit harder because it, it takes more time to win over mm-hmm. the hearts and minds of people. But I think that's really important. And it's important because it also builds unity. And it's not just about, you know, my team brought in this thing and your team brought in that thing. It's like, hey, we all agree that there's certain things that we should do. And I think that's why healthcare, for example, is something we really believe in as Canadians. And it's become a pillar for a lot of Canadians as what they believe in when they think about something that makes them proud to be Canadians is that we've got this system where you don't have to be super rich to get the best care possible. And I feel like that is something that has become a cultural element of Canadians. People believe in getting healthcare without having to, to spend thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like if we can get there on a lot of points where people say, yeah, I believe in that because I think it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the culture that we want to create. I think about that on my team. When I, when I think about the, the work culture I want to create, mm-hmm. I think about that as a country. Uh, and I think of a culture, there's lots of different forms of culture, but I really think about it as how do we want to take care of one another? What type of culture do we want to build around that notion of caring for your neighbor? And, and that's how I try to base a lot of things. Like, what's a good way to do that? Yeah, well, I believe it is the path forward um, in, in politics because I think it takes us away from tribalism or what team yeah. you're on. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. exactly. And that's what I love about it. So, But I think that you're the type of person who's, uh, you've, you've proven, <laughs> you've been this, yeah, that's right, girl. She agrees, she agrees too. <laughs> um, everything you've done in your life, you're not afraid of the hard work. Um, so I appreciate you, man. Um, this, these are our rapid fire questions. You can answer as, as as short or as long as you want, because you got to go and be daddy. Okay. (laughs) Normally I got her so good, man. It's it's all good. Listen, you're doing amazing. Are you you doing any, um, editing or is this like a straight full shot through? I can, I do edit, but I kind of love all this. I have to be okay. Good. <laughs> no, me too. I was, I was giving a speech in parliament and there was um, some crying in the background and people said, whose baby was that? And it was my colleague. She's a part of my team yeah. and she cried, but it was right when I was talking about, uh, I mean, there's a really sad speech. They're talking about children dying uh-huh. and she cried in that moment. And I thought it was poignant and beautiful. And people thought, was it a distraction? I'm like, I believe in creating spaces where you know, moms can have their kids, yeah. dads can have their kids. Of course. And if you have those spaces, sometimes kids are going to make a little noise. So, yeah. Man, I, I can, I, I, I have memories of holding my kids. Like, you know, it, I'm <laughs> telling you right now, so many people said to me, it goes fast and it does. So you take, yeah. take every moment. So let me, let me get you off this podcast. Yes. So you can I'm, no, I'm ready. I'm ready. I love okay. this. I think already I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask you, tell me something good about your life. Oof. This one right here. Anad yeah. Gore is something beautiful about my life. Uh, I got lots of love in my life, lots of good friends and family. So, uh, but yeah, I would say right now, baby girl. Beautiful. <laughs> Tell me about a good memory. A good memory. Um, I talked about riding my bike and learning how to ride my bike in, in, in Newfoundland. I also lived a lot of my life in Windsor and uh, riding my bike in the summer. In those days when you're a kid, when you feel like summer is endless. And you got this, I grew up in Windsor and, and it's uh, really warm. It's got humid summers. And I kind of love that. So like being really warm, breeze on a bike, when you feel like it's an endless summer, that's a, that's a good it. memory. Love it. Tell me a good song or album that we should listen to to make us feel good. Oof. I've been really actually on music recently. Uh, so this is a good question. Um, Oh man, I got to shout out someone Canadian, I feel like. Oh yeah, I mean, it's sad though, but it makes you feel good because sometimes it's okay to be sad to feel good. Yeah. It's uh, uh, Mustafa the Poet put out uh, an album and I didn't know at the time when I bought it, but I actually listened to it on record and, and it's, uh, it's um, a story of loss, but uh, beauty in 
in that struggle and in that loss, there's a beautiful message in it. And so it's uh, Mustafa, the poet, uh, a guy out of Regent Park in Toronto. Yeah. And it's his first album. So yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful good. record. Sounds good. Uh, tell me a good book or movie that we should watch to make us feel good. Oof, good book, a good book, a good book. Uh, I read a lot of books. A good book. I know, it's hard to make us one. feel good. Yeah, 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 yeah. What did I read recently? Um, reading Marlon James. Oh, I guess this, uh, this, this book is, it's a Canadian author. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's kind of like, it's Station Eleven. Uh, mm -hmm. author out of Vancouver Island mm -hmm. and it's uh, again it's it's a uh, maybe I have a bit of a theme here but it's it's a struggle like she, it's a dystopian world and she finds like a lot of beauty despite the world being in a rough spot so my wife here came to the rescue oh. <laughs> I was giving her a break she was doing thank some you stuff. well we're done here um that's a that's a good suggestion that book station um, 11 have you read it too no, but I, it's on my list. It's on my okay, list. Okay, it's a great book. Yeah, great book. And it's actually, um, I feel like the dystopia happened because of a, of a, of a pandemic as well. So a little bit of a... Very on, very on theme of what we on are theme, in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, going through. Okay, Jagmeet, last question. Uh, and again, thank you for your time, man. Here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Tell us something good that we should always do for ourselves. Ooh ourselves uh we should always have fun i mean i i stress this with my team that sometimes life and good work can feel like a struggle and i call it that struggle shouldn't just be a painful struggle it should be a joyful struggle so i always use this phrase the joyful struggle and that means finding joy in the moments but also finding a lot of joy around you so finding moments to have fun it is it is like a you should consider it a, an obligation and a responsibility to have fun and find joy. And, and joy should be something, there's a bunch of caveats around joy. It can't just be like going on a shopping spree or something. It's got to be, joy has to be something that you can do anytime you need to. And it shouldn't cost you a lot. And it's something that should be healthy. So listen to music or hanging with friends or calling up a loved one or going for a walk, but finding moments of joy uh, is is like a should be like a job almost like you should do this as a responsibility every day you need to have joy and you should fill up your joy tank sounds like a pretty good thing like uh, going uh, <laughs> for a jog in Bowering park that's it exactly exactly <laughs> that would be 100 on the list right on um okay thank you so much for your time get back to your day get back to your family thank you thank you i love the oh i love how you tied it all together i gotta say like what is good in life and then questions about good stuff because it's important to to remind ourselves that there's a lot of good in the world and there's a lot of joy in the world and there's and and i feel like sometimes we lose that and so what a beautiful thing you got me thinking more about it and i'm already a pretty joyful person but you got me more oh man joy after this chat man well appreciate i appreciate that and we gotta maybe give a final thank thanks to your uh, mom for that quote to start us off because that's what it is we're all connected by that desire for happiness and joy even when we struggle we just got to remember that the struggle 100%. doesn't always last you know 100 100 we are all connected and we are all one brother we are all connected we are all one man what a perfect way to end that conversation I can't really put in words to you what it what it felt like to sit there and have that conversation with Mr. Singh while he was holding his his newborn baby girl. Like all I was thinking sometimes was on one shoulder he's got the weight of his family and literally on the other shoulder sometimes he's got the weight of the country. Like what a what a position to be in. And at the same time, I felt like I was just talking to a friend. Like, it, it was so casual. And not for nothing, I have two kids. And I have been in the newborn phase. You're not getting a lot of sleep. Um, it's not easy. But his beautiful baby girl 
sat through that whole entire interview. Until the very end, she really didn't make any noise. So either Jugmeat and his wife have um, hit the jackpot when it comes to newborn baby um, sleeping very well, or maybe Jugmeat has the uh, super dad touch. I was also really taken with Jugmeat's honesty about his father and, you know, how we just never gave up on him. And I think that says a lot about Jagmeet Singh as a politician, as somebody who wants to work hard to help people. And just because he is this well-known figure in the political landscape, someone we see on our TVs all the time and we hear about and read about in the news, doesn't mean as a person, as a human being, that he hasn't had some of the same struggles that we have. He hasn't faced some of the same darkness that we have. You know, we're all connected as humans, just, you know, trying to get through the day, trying to get through life. You know, like I said at the top, this wasn't a political interview, and I certainly don't aspire to have a podcast that gets into politics. But on a very basic human level, we are all connected. It doesn't matter what your politics are, you know? But your words matter, you know? Your words matter. And um, that was, uh, I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of buzzing from it, if I'm being honest. Thank you to NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. Thank you to all of you for listening. Good Things with Matt Wells is produced by me, Matt Wells, and Vince Buddha for Greater Hood Productions. Our theme song is Good Things by Rival Schools. Make sure you, you share this with a friend. Subscribe, rate it. All that stuff helps us uh, get into other people's ears. We'll talk to you next time.